Welcome to episode 24 of the Asquith Hour. Well, the news is the same old, same old, but somehow it's even worse. And of course, that's what we're going to have to talk about today. I'm still in Tel Aviv. I've tried to leave a couple of times, but non-Israeli airlines are not flying in at the moment. So I'm sure I'll rant and rave like I did last time. I've worked out a better word than enjoy for the time being. Endure. I'm going to start with just a little explanation of what life has been like in Tel Aviv for the last week or so. Before I do, I just want to say first up that I am well aware that it is much harder to be in the south of Israel where they are constantly going through this, as in not just is this almost every hour of the day at the moment, but this is their lives many days of every year for the past 10 or 15 years. And we in Tel Aviv are lucky that we just get this every now and then. And I imagine it's fairly depressing for the citizens of the South that it's only when Tel Aviv gets bombed that the government says, maybe they've crossed some lines, we need to do something about it. Most of us in Tel Aviv are well aware of what you're going through, and we don't think you're second-class citizens. In fact, we're well aware of just how first-class you guys are. And all of us, including our friends in the South of Israel, are well aware that it's even harder and more dangerous for a lot of the time to be a citizen of Gaza. Frankly, we hope that if you're the bad kind of citizen of Gaza, it's particularly dangerous to you. And luckily, it seems to be proving so up to now. Two-thirds of the casualties in Gaza, according to the IDF at least, because Hamas have stopped releasing statistics since they worked out how bad it makes them look, and that it also shows up the lie that they tell that Israel is targeting innocent civilians, have transpired to be members of Hamas and Islamic Jihad, more of which to follow. For the other citizens of Gaza who just want to live their lives, we are thinking about you too, and we wish that you would have a government that would take the same kind of responsibility for you as our government at least tries to take for us, at least most of the time. And we're hoping that the young men and women that we have to send out to try and separate your government from you and hopefully from their heads will do so as surgically as is humanly possible. And we know that it's not always possible to do that. And we just hope that people understand that the intent of what they are trying to do. So the way it works in Tel Aviv is that we have about a minute when a rocket is launched from Gaza that looks likely to land somewhere in a built-up area to find shelter. The siren goes off and depending on where you are, you have various options. So in my normal flat in the north of Tel Aviv, we have a relatively secure stairwell, which would certainly be fine to protect us from falling shrapnel from intercepted rockets if they're hit by Iron Dome. And if it looks like there's any chance of rockets really getting through in any serious number, then the next thing to do is to retreat to the basement where there's a supposedly reinforced bomb shelter. But it's fairly gross because my neighbors don't really spend any time or money taking care of it for these kind of incidents. So it's a place you want to spend the absolute minimum amount of time possible. Even sitting in the stairwell is obviously not fun when you can hear the booms above your head and you're wondering, whether things have been intercepted, what's going to fall out of the sky on us. And these booms are loud enough and strong enough that the windows rattle and sometimes the whole building shakes. 
and those are from interceptions. So if you think that's bad, you can imagine what happens when a rocket actually gets through Iron Dome, which is not perfect. And if you fire that many rockets, and we're up to the thick end of 3,500 now, hundreds will break through Iron Dome. It's not a flawless system. And frankly, Hamas are lucky that we have such a good defense. If Iron Dome didn't exist or wasn't so efficient, we'd be in a very different war right now. Another option, if you don't have a good stairwell or basement, is that in more modern constructions they have what's called a mamad, which is a reinforced room. So when they build these uh, new towers, for example, there will be one column of the tower that's built with extra reinforced steel girders inside the concrete. The concrete is extra thick, and the window of that room has a huge metal shutter that you can roll into place to protect it from blast. Again, even these are not perfect, and a young kid died in the south because a piece of shrapnel managed to pierce the shutter, and there's an investigation to understand whether the shutter was not closed, was not properly fitted, was too flimsy or, or whatever, or whether it was just dumb luck that from certain angles these things are also not foolproof. So I've moved to my aunt and uncle's holiday home a little further south within Tel Aviv because they have one of these reinforced rooms, and it has at least allowed me to go to sleep at night on the sofa bed in that room with my earplugs in and the door and window shut so that I don't even wake up for the sirens and can sleep through the booms. And of course, ever since I've done that, there haven't really been any sirens or interceptions, but I'm still sleeping more soundly for at least having that protection. The other thing, of course, is that you can be out on the street when these sirens go off. And what's happening at the moment is that either people are simply minimizing the amount of time that they spend mm -hmm. doing anything that they don't really have to or when they are outdoors there is a constant effort to think where is it that I can get to within a few seconds if I need to what piece of rock can I shelter behind is there a communal bomb shelter is the door of that building open in case I need to dart into it if you're in your car in open space the instruction is to get out of your car because a car is obviously a tinderbox full of glass and metal and the instruction is to lie down, cover your head, and basically hope for the best. And if we have a look at how most of the deaths have occurred in Israel so far, it's been really people who've just been caught in the open or unable to move fast enough, sometimes even within their own homes, to get to the stairwell or the reinforced room. Now, of course, some of you who are listening to this will no doubt have the usual criticism that, yeah, it's worse for the Palestinians. Yes, it is. We get that. But it's worse because of the way that their government behaves and that they've made a conscious decision to put their people in harm's way through their actions and also through their inaction in building a civil society that actually protects its own. They could have sirens and bomb shelters so that when they declare war on Israel as the obviously larger and stronger party, they don't put civilians in harm's way. But that's not part of the game. They like to keep the asymmetry that they have. So... Just stay focused on what this means. We are in a Western country, a country in the OECD, and we have to calculate every move we make. And at least in Tel Aviv, we have a minute, maybe even a minute and a half sometimes to take shelter. If you're in the south and you're close enough to the Gaza envelope, we're talking 15 seconds. Imagine how far from your door you are in 15 seconds. And now imagine that every 100 yards, there has to be a concrete pillbox that's constructed so anyone who's on the street when that siren goes off can literally dive for cover and hope for the best again. School playgrounds and parks in that part of Israel have specially constructed little domes and sometimes they color them in so that it's like a children's climbing frame or whatever and the kids all know when that siren goes off you crawl inside it. I have friends in Tel Aviv who don't have a bomb shelter in their building, don't have a good stairwell, don't have a reinforced room, 
and they're crawling under the table like something out of the Second World War when that siren goes off. And I have others who've become totally fatalistic. They just go about their lives. They take a view that Iron Dome is pretty decent. When it's your time, it's your time. What am I supposed to do about it? And that needs to be internalized. That for all it is the case that, thank God, barely a dozen people have died on the Israeli side of this conflict. That's because of the investment that we've made in protecting ourselves. And it does not mean that there is no psychological impact. There is deep trauma. And the amount of time that I have to spend as someone who's very stoical about these things and who's had some experience of them before, looking after, especially people who have not. And by the way, including Israelis who you'd think would be reasonably battle-hardened, who end up sitting in stairwells, sobbing their eyes out in hysterics. This is no way for us to live our lives either. This is not a conflict that can simply be reduced to the number of fatalities. And we'll go into what happens when you try that now. But please do bear in mind that there are real people on both sides of this conflict and on the Israeli side, which does not get a lot of empathy from anybody, people are traumatized. Children are not going to school and they're at home in bomb shelters and reinforced rooms. And the stress that is placed on families is, is inordinate. And even as banal as the stress on pets, I've been watching what happens to my friend's dogs every time they hear a boom. Every time the siren goes off, these animals are freaked out as well. I know this sounds terrible and I know, yes, so, but the poor Palestinians. I get it. It's possible to have two thoughts in my head at the same time. I can feel for the Palestinians and I'm not suggesting that they mean less to me than my friend's dog. But I'm just asking you to try and step into the shoes of the average Israeli at this point. And you need to ask, how many rockets would it take? How many sirens would it take going off in whichever town you live in in the Western world before you would expect your government to do whatever was necessary. And ask yourselves honestly, would you say, oh, it must be utterly surgical if one hair on the head of a child is touched on the other side, that's it? Or would you say, no holds barred, just get rid of these tossers, they're trying to kill us? Or what is your point in between and why? What would be your strategy? How much time would you spend rending your own clothes and, and saying, oh, well, we brought this on ourselves somehow, you know, we could have had a better policy here or there, and we should have withdrawn from this or that. Or how much time would you say spend saying, you know what, these people are, as of now, trying to kill us, and we have to respond to today's threat, which is that they're trying to kill us. Tomorrow is the time for us to debate policy options. So hopefully that gives you some idea of what life is like in Israel behind the statistics. Let's talk about statistics. You frequently see in the foreign press that the way to judge this contest is how many people have died. So because, inverted commas, only 10 or 12 people are dead on the Israeli side of the border and some 220 have died on the Gazan side of the border, the Israelis must clearly be the bad guys because we're outscoring them by 12 to 1 on corpses. And that's the measure, apparently. Intent goes out of the window. But let's set aside intent for a moment and let's actually evaluate what these statistics are about. So there are 217 is the precise number as of this morning, casualties in Gaza, fatalities that is. And the IDF has identified 146 of those fatalities as being members of Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. In other words, two thirds of the dead people are members of terrorist organizations. 
Now, we're being told that Israel is indiscriminately bombing the Gaza Strip. So there can only be two possible conclusions. One is they are indiscriminately bombing the Gaza Strip. They've only managed to kill 217 people in an area that apparently is the size of a postage stamp and, you know, the world's largest open-air prison and all of these other bombastic and ludicrous statements. In which case, two-thirds of the residents of Gaza apparently belong to terrorist organizations. So that's probably not a convenient way of looking at it. Or what's more likely is they're being highly discriminant. And now you also have to bear in mind that inside those 217 deaths and 146 members of terrorist organizations, you also have all of the countless deaths of Gazan citizens who have been underneath the some 450 rockets fired by Hamas and Islamic Jihad that haven't even made it out of the Gaza Strip before going wrong and falling on their own people, who, as we know, do not have bomb shelters and sirens because that's not what their government has systematically invested in. All of those deaths are conveniently blamed on Israel, of course. At the same time, we are now around 3,500 rockets that have been fired at Israel. A handful of them, Hamas claim, have been pointed somewhere towards military targets. Out of the 12 people who've died from these attacks, one was a soldier. So in other words, it would be quite easy to turn around and say, well, Hamas seemed to be targeting civilians because they managed to have a 90% success rate at hitting civilians, not soldiers or military targets. So if you want to play these numbers games, then at least have the decency to do it properly. And as I say, that is before we go back to the matter of intent, which is that those rockets Hamas are aiming are clearly being pointed at civilian targets and their own civilian targets at that because of their incompetence and frankly their callousness. Dead bodies on their side of the fence are almost as valuable to their course as dead bodies on our side of the fence. Meanwhile, the same is not true the other way around. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Dead Israelis are not good for the Israeli government and dead Palestinian civilians are not good for the Israeli government. It beggars belief that anybody thinks that this canard of Israel being genocidal, Israel targeting civilians, is remotely acceptable and that they don't seem to understand how quickly that leads to a blood libel against the whole Jewish people. So even if you say these things and your intention is not to be anti-Semitic, you really just believe that Israeli government policy is terrible, or maybe you even believe that Israel has some lack of right to exist unlike every other country on earth, and you really don't think you're anti-Semitic. But the upshot is that when enough of you write status updates on Facebook and post on Instagram, Bella and Gigi Hadid, and march on the streets, streets screaming these slogans, the net effect is that Jews suffer everywhere. So whether or not you meant to, what you are doing is stoking anti-Semitism and you should take a long hard look at yourselves and fucking stop. Incidentally, I do not remember when your ilk were marching on the streets against China. I don't remember you trashing Chinese restaurants. I don't remember you mugging Chinese people on the streets. I don't remember you driving down from Leicester and Blackburn to London to drive around neighborhoods of Chinatown in, and screaming that you want to rape Chinese women. It's funny how that's only for the Jews. We have a word for that. Know yourselves. Know what you are. Why don't you just be proud of it? And therefore, everyone who's sitting on the fence 
going, oh, yeah, the poor Palestinians, but oh, it's not that I'm anti-Semitic. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, average white liberals sitting around looking at it and saying, no, maybe that went a bit far. But you're not out there speaking out against people walking through Jewish neighborhoods of London, ripping mezuzot off doors. You're nowhere to be seen when people who are just beginning to return to their synagogues and to communal life after a year of corona are now being cowed into staying at home instead of joining their communities. Where are you? Where are you? Fine, you don't want to go and put yourselves on the line in a synagogue or whatever else. I understand that. It's why you pay your taxes so that the British government can provide the Jewish community with 14 million pounds just to protect itself because they don't have the resources and manpower within the police. So the Jewish community has to train up its own volunteers to protect its own institutions, which in itself is a disgrace in a Western country like the UK. And this is something that is going to be repeated all over the world now. The UK is actually far ahead in many ways because at least the government accepts that it has a responsibility that it cannot fully execute on its own. So at the very least, if you're a middle grounder, you don't have skin in the game, you're not Palestinian, you're not Muslim, you're not Jewish, you're not Israeli, but you're sitting at home and you're sitting on the fence, you need to ask yourselves, how can you be sitting on the fence, given everything that I've just explained to you? There is a right and wrong here, and it's not about Israel versus Palestine, or even Israel versus Hamas. It's much simpler than that. It's that there is one side that is trying to protect innocent life on both sides, and of course will end up killing innocent people because it's trying to respond and root out an organization that is a prescribed terrorist group that has intentionally put itself between civilians. But the correct answer is not to simply say, well, oh, stop the war. Oh, let's not fire back. Come on. You know, we've seen where that appeasement leads us. We've seen it for 100 years. We know where that goes. That's not the answer. Unfortunately, sometimes to preserve the majority of innocent lives on both sides, you have to take risks which sometimes may involve also that innocent people will die. There simply is no better solution. Oh, well, if we just had peace. Israel gave that territory to the Palestinians. They allowed Hamas to take charge. They elected them. This is not something which Israel can take permanent responsibility for. And there have been opportunities for peace right up until under even Donald Trump, who came forward with a plan that was actually relatively reasonable, given the kind of crazy shit he spouted about other things. And he managed to broker the Abraham Accords, so six Arab countries now have peace with Israel. It's not like this is a fundamental problem to do with even the land itself, or to do with Arabs versus Israelis or Muslims versus Jews. This is a very specific problem to do with Hamas, and we can come back at a later date to why there's also a problem with Fatah, or, you know, as we politely call them, the Palestinian Authority, who are not much short of a terrorist group either. So that's your choice. You, you can back the guys who are willfully putting people in harm's way on both sides of the border, or you can back the guys who are trying to protect people on both sides of the border. And you can accept that when there is collateral damage, it has happened in good faith and it's a tragedy. And it's something that 90-something percent of Israelis are also tossing and turning in their sleep, if they're allowed sleep, whilst three and a half thousand rockets pour on them over a 10-day period. Because we suffer for that as well. It's not in our interests. So... Every time that you see these crazy statements being made on social media or you hear these chants, where are you? I don't think you need to put yourself in harm's way by 
counter-protesting alongside the Jewish community. And believe me, the Jewish community is terrified to do so as well. And the police provide not nearly enough cover for us to exercise our democratic rights to free speech and to counter these disgusting things, which, by the way, are possibly not even legal because prescribed terror organizations are not supposed to be marching in central London. But the least you could do, and this is the very least you could do, is privately reach out to your Jewish friends and just see how they're doing. Have you done that? Maybe the next phase is perhaps you could post something on social media, not even on your own feed, not proactively, but when you see other people spouting things that you know to be untrue and that you know are just yet another chip away at the safety of the Jewish community and, and at the very existence of Israel as it stands, and that are effectively, therefore, a blow in support of a terrorist organization, maybe that's the time to just politely make a small comment underneath it. I don't think that's asking too much. Just a small, mild corrective. No one's asking mm -hmm. you to take Hasbara 101 classes and defend everything the Israeli government does. Believe me, most Israelis don't defend everything the Israeli government does. But this is a time to not be neutral about it and pretend that neutrality is somehow acceptable. If you really believe yourself to be pro-Palestinian, this is the time to speak up for Palestinian rights. And Palestinian rights are that they should have a government that protects them, a government that does not bomb the border crossings where their enemy is supplying them with humanitarian aid in the middle of a war, because that's what happened yesterday. Maybe a government that allows free and fair elections. Maybe a government that doesn't discriminate against women and that doesn't threaten and even murder its gays. Maybe those would just be some basic requirements. You know, it's a, another canard that people love to throw. Oh, Israel, the apartheid state. I would love to know how many Jews you guys think are living in the Palestinian territories. I'd love to know how many Christians are still living in the Palestinian territories because there is ongoing persecution of Palestinian Christian groups. Their numbers have dropped precipitously in the last 20 years or so because there's no longer the IDF around to protect them and their rights and to stop these various warring factions from ganging up on each other. So this is the trouble. It's a really complex situation here. So when you scream these banalities like, stop the occupation, the idea that the occupation is a universal bad is, is also fundamentally false. And I am not in favor of the principle of occupation. But the idea that everything to do with when Israel was in full control of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip was somehow bad is one of the reasons we're in this problem in the first place. There are shades of gray. One of the things that Israel did that has never been adequately replaced by either Hamas or the PA in either Gaza or the West Bank was some kind of overall rule of law, some kind of investment in infrastructure, in everyone's infrastructure. These things just simply aren't there anymore. And I'm absolutely not advocating for a return to Israel controlling everybody. The Oslo Accords did a tremendous thing, which is that they put over 95% of the Palestinian population under the control of Palestinians. And that was 100% the right thing to do, to give civil control of daily Palestinian life to Palestinians. But we have to discuss how come that did not seem to be the priority, certainly not of Hamas, and too often not of the Palestinian Authority, to focus on civil law and civil rule of their people. So if you want to have a policy debate, let's have a policy debate. But please, these 
blanket statements of stop the occupation, oh, Israel is genocidal. None of these things are true and none of these things are fair and none of these things are actually constructive and fundamentally none of these things are actually pro-Palestinian. And where it leaves people like me, as someone who's a centrist in Israeli politics and, and a highly pragmatic person, I just look at these people who claim to be pro-Palestinian and what I see is, no, you're actually anti-Israel and probably anti-Jewish. And what you're doing by making these statements and by failing to engage in the actual facts is a huge disservice to the Palestinians. A huge disservice service. You're perpetuating the conflict because you are encouraging the most extreme people in their populations to have everybody else suffer. And gradually what's happening over time is that whereas most Israelis would have thought, yeah, there's a silent majority of peaceful Palestinians who just want to get on with their lives. And I'm sure we could manage if they had a state next to ours. And what's gradually happening, especially because Hamas social media, Fatah social media, is all encouraging violence, not just violence in Gaza, but violence in the West Bank, not just the West Bank, but in East Jerusalem, where, which is under the civil control of Israel. And not only that, but they're also fomenting violence among Arabs who have Israeli citizenship in Israel proper. They are trying to create a civil war here. So again, when you support these kind of statements, that is actually what you turn out to be backing here. And I found that it's extremely frustrating, but I suppose it's not as bad as it could be that whenever I really try and confront some of these people who seem to me to be kind of lost liberals who have no direct skin in the game, they often go, oh, yeah, I, you're right, I, ju I just want peace on both sides. They want some, you know, fucking kumbaya situation. But you don't get kumbaya by supporting the side that's the prescribed terrorist organization. And again, I am not saying you have to support the Israeli government in everything that it does, or even this. But why don't you come up with a different solution if you don't think this is the way to do it? Why don't you engage with the issues? And like I said, why don't you have the humanity to actually check in on your Jewish and Israeli friends? I can tell you that something that is not reported is that there are entire groups on Facebook or WhatsApp and elsewhere of Israelis, especially along the border with Gaza, who check in with Gaza neighbors that for various reasons they've come across and been in contact with over the years. And it's not as widespread as it could be. And if you want to know why, it's because the last time that there was any serious effort, there were Zoom calls between Israelis and Gazans, and Hamas worked out who had participated and punished them for it. So you have one side where the people and their government are making efforts to preserve the sanctity of life and who understand the importance of trying to have a dialogue because these are really complicated issues. And you have another side whose government are absolutely not interested in any of that and who have gradually brainwashed so many of their people to see us as this enemy that must be eradicated. And the most unfortunate thing is that too many of you sitting at home outside this area are on their side instead of ours. And like I said, Ours includes everybody who just wants to find some way to live in this neighborhood. If anyone listening to this disagrees with any of the statements that I've made, you can feel free to drop a voicemail. You can feel free to participate in a debate with me, either for this podcast or just you want to drop me a line and we can just discuss it. That's fine. But that's the appropriate forum to have a debate. It's not to make one-sided statements with absolutely no counterfactuals. And then to claim that somehow you're acting in the interests of, of the good guys. You, you're not. What's in the interests of the good guys is for us to have everything on the table. And what you'll find in Israeli society is that that's how we operate here. We try and just put everything on the table. When things go wrong, usually people hold their hands up to it. 
We're aghast when things go wrong. We don't like it when we hear, oh, there was not a proper adequate warning of evacuation and now, you know, three kids are dead. That's horrible for us. It, it was horrible for us when there was one lynching of Jews against Arabs, even though there have been, for every one of those, 50 lynchings of Arabs against Jews. But one was too many for us in Israel, because that's the moral code here. And that's not just spin. You, you can ask the average Israeli, and by the way, you can actually ask the right wing of Israel. One of the first people to speak out against some of the horrific domestic issues that we suddenly started to have. One of the first people was Bezalel Smotrich, a guy who I deplore, who is the leader of the most far-right party in the Knesset. And he was one of the first people who said, it is absolutely unacceptable for anyone to take the law into their own hands. And it is totally unacceptable to assume that all Arabs within Israel are enemies. That's not how it works. And if the leader of the far right can say that, then pay attention. And by the way, there's an equal and opposite. Mansour Abbas from Ra'am, who we visited in a previous episode, did exactly the same the other way around. He turned on the Arab population of Israel and said, how dare you turn around and attack your neighbors? This is not how it works. Mansour Abbas was elected for a reason, and that reason was so that Arabs could participate in Israeli society. It's also a shame on everybody in Israeli politics, pretty much, that Mansour Abbas and Ram will not probably be serving in the next government, because as this whole process has unfolded, the coalition talks for the not-bibi movement, for lack of a better phrase, have collapsed because Bennett can't be seen to be sitting in government with Arabs at this point, which I find fairly abhorrent, because this is a guy who, at least on the face of it, has openly spoken out against this kind of violence and has tried to participate. And the point at which we refuse to give 20-something percent of our citizenry the benefit of the doubt, before we start to presume an innocence and, and a good intent as the starting point for discussion and for them participating in Israeli society, we have a real problem. And I've heard all sorts of arguments, oh, we, we mustn't allow Arab parties to sit in government because it's a slippery slope. A slippery slope to what exactly? With four seats in a coalition, these people are not going to be running the government. They're not going to sit in the security cabinet. They're going to get one ministry, which will probably be a specially created Ministry of Arab Affairs, which is long overdue. Or they could have a perfectly neutral ministry like transportation or health. And it's very interesting that the exact people who make the slippery slope argument, whatever the hell that means, seem to have no problem with the two Haredi parties, with their routinely corrupt leaders, having been involved in and manipulated Israeli politics for years and having totally wrecked various ministries that they've been involved with, including the farcical situation of us having a Minister of Health who didn't have a smartphone or access to the internet in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. I wish these people, just like I've called out the anti-Semites pretending that they're just terribly pro-Palestinian, who don't have the decency to just say, yeah, we just fucking hate Jews. I want to call out the people who just don't have the decency to say, yeah, we hate Arabs and we don't think these people should be equal citizens or maybe they shouldn't be citizens at all. If you don't think that Arabs have the right to elect people to the Knesset and if you don't think that those members of Knesset, should they say that they're willing to act responsibly and participate in government, have a right to participate in that government subject to appropriate coalition negotiations, then call yourself what you are. You don't believe that Arabs here should have equal rights, and you probably want to strip them of their citizenship. Just say it. Just say it already. 
in general, what I'm driving at is that on all sides, what is required is to establish a presumption of good intent until proven otherwise. And when we come back to the wider conflict at the moment, it is quite clear that Israel deserves to be given that presumption, and Hamas fundamentally does not. And within Israel, I implore everybody to practice what we are preaching, which is to presume good intent on the part of your neighbor, however different they are to you, until they prove otherwise. And to remember that we do not believe in collective punishment. It's not supposed to be how it works. Just as we don't like it when Jews abroad, who aren't even Israeli, seem to be punished right now for the perceived sins of the Israeli government. And just as we demand of our government and army that they don't collectively punish Palestinians for the sins of their government or the sins of terrorist organizations operating from within their territories, which the government claims not to be able to control. Well, I think that's long enough for this episode. So thank you for joining me and let's hope for cheerier news the next time, although I continue to doubt it. We shall endure and we shall overcome. And until we do, we are defiant.